Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked. I'm your host, Samir Kaji. On this episode, I would talk to Sahil Lavingia, founder of Gumroad. Sahil started Gumroad in 2011 and counted early backers such as Excel, First Round Capital, Kleiner Perkins, and angels such as Ron Conway, Naval Ravikant, and Chris Saka. Like most companies, Gumroad had plenty of bumps along the way, but now is profitable and growing. For those that don't know the full story, make sure to check out his 2019 Medium post titled, Reflecting on My Failure to Build a Billion Dollar Company. Sahil is also one of the most prominent early adopters of AngelList's rolling fund product, which launched earlier this year. In this episode, Sahil walks us through why he went down the rolling fund route, his view on venture as a whole, how he scales himself, and his founder reflections on working with VCs. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Sahil, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's get into your background first in your journey. And you've been very, very public with your role at Gumroad and on Twitter, which I've really enjoyed. But for those that don't know you, can you just walk us through your journey in tech and venture? Yeah, so I got started in tech building iPhone apps primarily back in 2009, 2010, right when the App Store sort of opened up broadly to developers. I was living in Singapore at the time, and that was sort of my first exposure to being able to make money on the internet selling to to strangers, which is sort of like a, a theme in my, my life. Since then, with Gumroad and the, even the Rolling Fund, potentially, uh, I moved to the U.S. I went to USC uh, for computer science, computer engineering in, in 2010. And just by putting my work online, startups, you know, there's sort of a drought for talent in San Francisco. So I started getting emails, cold emails from, from people like uh, Ben, who started Pinterest, ended up doing a bunch of contract work that turned into would you consider taking a leave of absence, joining us full time? And so that's what I ended up doing. I moved up to the Bay Area in 2011, joined Pinterest as uh, the second employee, built uh, Pinterest for iPhone, among some other things. And pretty soon got the startup bug, probably not the, the wisest financial decision I ever made, but I, I decided to leave Pinterest, start Gumroad, raise some money from for that from folks like Chris Saka and Naval Robcont and uh, First Round and Ended up doing a Series A from Kleiner Perkins not not too long after that and was really like in it, you know, like it felt like everything was going the way that it was supposed to go. And then it didn't. In uh, 2015, we tried to raise a Series B, sort of failed miserably, sort of talked to, you know, the, the sort of 100, 150 VC firms, started with the top and, and worked my way down, getting no's all the way. Uh, ended up having to do a round of layoffs, went from 20 people down to five people got to profitable, got rid of our San Francisco office, went remote 2016, sort of by necessity, and similar to how a lot of folks have had to do in 2020. And then just kind of turned the business into a, you know, growing sort of normal profitable software business. Told the investors, hey, I've, you know, I've been doing this for quite a few years, and I need to take a break. So I end up leaving San Francisco, the business continued to grow, I would sort of do support, you know, hired a few contractors to, to kind of fix bugs and, and build a few features and things. And then what really kind of brought Gumroad back into, I think, the conversation was COVID because, you know, all of these folks are now working from home, workshops and trainings and all of these things were being canceled. And so Gumroad started to grow much, much faster. This year will double from 5 million to 10 million in, in ARR, which is crazy because I sort of had written it off. <laughs> Last year, I wrote, a, I wrote a post saying, you know, reflecting on my failure to build Gumroad into a billion dollar company. So it's kind of ironic almost like what's, what's happened in the last year and a half. But I, I credit that to just being open and transparent and, 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 and hopefully doing it to just educate other folks who are sort of like maybe starting that journey that I started 10 years ago, but now it's sort of 
come in to reward me. And I think that funnels really nicely into the rolling fund, which is an idea that came about in June and has sort of had a similar kind of thing where I just sort of talked about it publicly, pinged a lot of the government investors, raised a small fund. And the traction I think that that has had is, is, is also from just being willing to share and learn publicly. I want to go back to the Gumroad journey. You have been very public in the writings of the company starting off as a rocket ship, raising from tier one investors, and then having the bumps and now reconstituting it as a very successful and profitable business. But you took money, I think, from Excel in the seed round and then Kleiner in the uh, Series A round. The journey itself, taking money from those type of investors, having those bumps, what did you learn from that? And how has it shaped your view on taking venture money early from big firms? It's easy to go on Twitter and say, you know, venture is bad and you should bootstrap as long as you can. And, you know, there's sort of like a very sort of, and maybe I contribute to that sometimes too. There's sort of an anti-VC streak there. The truth is, look, like when, when you raise money, it allows you to do certain things that you just can't get when you're bootstrapping. It gives you this great external signal. It gives you this brand. It makes hiring easier. Uh, it makes it possible, frankly, if you don't have money, it's really, <laughs> engineers are, are not cheap. Um, what I learned was it, it's not going to solve your problems, right? Ultimately, you, you, you raise some capital, you get a little bit of a boost via some press and, and some notoriety that way. But ultimately, it's, it's up to you to build a company. And I think if I were to go back in time, I would have just told myself, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing what you're doing, but just make sure. And luckily, the path, like, I'm really happy with how things turned out. But for years, I wasn't, you know, uh, 2015, for example, we'd raised $10 million on top of the, the seat in the Series A. We ended up raising a bridge round from Kleiner. You know, we were buried in liquidation preferences around $16 million. We're at like one and a half in, in maybe revenue a year uh, growing. You know, we basically flatlined the company. You know, it just wasn't exactly where I wanted to be. And I think that's fine. It, it, it ended up working. But when you raise money, you should just be really certain. What I, what I tell founders now is like, look, it's kind of like a one-way door. People ask me, you know, should I raise money or not? And, and I always tell people, if you're really asking, you probably shouldn't because raising venture is a very, it's like, should I get married? <laughs> Maybe even, you know, people joke that it's even more painful uh, to get someone off your cap table than to get a divorce. And I think that's true to, to, to some degree. You want to really make sure that the path you're going down, that the liquidity that you plan to, you know, you're sort of aiming for at least lines up with, with everybody and building a business that, you know, turns cash and, and distributes profits those are the vast majority of great businesses. That's very a very, very different model than, than sort of giving people stock and, and hoping that that stock appreciates by an order of magnitude or more. And it's very difficult to go from uh, the latter to the former. It's interesting with the uh, VC sentiment within the founder community. And as you know, I'm not a big fan of anti-VC sentiment or anything like that. I think there's pros and cons of each type of capital source. But I'd be curious from your perspective, as you talk about taking capital for somebody, it's a long-term marriage. What are the things that as you worked with the different VC firms that invested in Gumroad and what you're seeing from your founder friends, what makes for a really good board member or a VC? As a founder, especially as a first-time founder, you don't really know, you have no patterns to match against. And I think folks like Excel and, and Kleiner have that. And so I think the most valuable thing they can do in the early days, you know, sort of pre- sort of executive team building and a lot of the things that I think these firms can can also help with in, in the sort of series B and onward stage. But at the earlier stage, it's just saying, look, this is what we expect from you. This is what we see gets you to a really nice series A, really nice series B. This is what we see doesn't, frankly. And I think 
I wish there was a little bit more pressure to say, look, and I, I think part of it is, is, you know, venture capitalists don't want to be seen as the bad guy, right? There are all these stories of getting CEOs out of their jobs and, and et cetera, et cetera. But I, I do think the most valuable thing and the thing that I try to help founders with too, is just to say, look, I, I'm a founder, but I'm also a VC and I can tell you what we care about. Uh, and I can tell you that these are the metrics that we care about. These are the things we don't care about. Just so you know, you can always, you know, it's up to you to run the company to decide what you want to do. But this is how we look at you. This meme that I've seen that is like, you know, it's, it's really annoying that VCs call it a deal. Uh, and I get that, right? It's your company, it's your baby and, and being referred to as sort of just like a transaction can be a little weird. But ultimately, it's important to recognize that's how you are often looked at. And it's important to know just like it's important to know, look, it might be your baby, but to an employee, it might just be a job. And that's fine. Uh, to other employees, it might not be, right? You should just understand the, the perspective in which people are looking at your thing so you can provide the most value for them and, and not waste your time on the things that don't, that don't really matter. And I, I think sort of more specifically about the Kleiner Excel thing, I think the transition that I've seen recently is a lot of folks are now raising more from other founders and, and founders running these small funds than these institutionals. I think in general, that's a good thing because I think those firms are super helpful series A and beyond. But if, if you feel like all I need is a little bit of capital and I just want some people who have empathy, I find that the, the people who are actually writing the smaller checks, 10K upwards, are often very, very helpful compared to the capital that they're putting in. Whereas a lot of these firms, especially if you have a, a billion dollars on your management, your 100K, 200K, 500K check, you know, people sort of refer to it as an option call, right? Uh, previously, that you kind of needed that because if you wanted, you know, to put together a million dollar seed round at the time, pre seed didn't exist. You needed a big chunk of it to come from a firm that would sort of do the due diligence and give you credibility to the other folks. But it's kind of switched now, where I feel like almost the signal you get is from the individuals and the, the folks putting in 10, 25, 50k, and then a firm will come in and like fill out the rest of the round, putting in 500k or you know half or more of whatever the round is. So I think that dynamic. I, I suspect that, you know, Sequoia with their scout program, I think they're, they're being, being really clever about how do we still stay in that game, but be honest about it and valuable about it, which is like, maybe we just give founders capital to deploy it. Uh, and then the founders can sort of run their little mini little funds, if you would call it that even uh, the way that they that they should. And so I, I think there are going to be a lot of interesting shifts around this, around this, especially as this sort of openness and transparency, I think will just continue to accelerate over time in the industry. I think you've touched on something, and it's going to be a good segue into what we talk about with rolling funds. But beyond that, there has been this fragmentation that's occurred in venture with the number of seed funds that have come up really since the global financial crisis. I think we count like 1,500 and now solo capitalists, rolling funds, things like that. But as a founder, what do you think the capital market is going to look like over the next decade? I mean, you're right that a lot of the big firms are playing in seed and coming down market and effectively buying options. But what does the seed market look like tomorrow? How did the solo capitalists, rolling funds play with seed funds and, and larger funds? I think the largest macro shift we've seen, and this definitely is since 2007, 2008, but I feel like even really 2020, I think seeing the sort of like the yield decrease worldwide, seeing that tech seems to be one of the places where you can still find that quote unquote, yield relatively effectively, you know, that's just causing the prices of public public company stocks like Square and Peloton and, and uh, Shopify and Tesla to go through the roof. And I think that is sort of driving prices up everywhere, right? Because people sort of 
then are like, well, can I get in early? So they're trying to get in at the IPO or pre-IPO. And those pre-IPO folks are like, can we get in at Series B, C, D? You know, the Series B folks are saying, can we do Series A? The Series A folks are saying, can we do C? The C people are like, we need a new term, pre-seed. Uh, who knows what will come next? Uh, I, I think everyone is, is always is going to trend earlier because that's where the outsized returns are, are, are going to be. Ultimately, the best returns are if you decide to start the company, right? You're sort of day zero. You know, this is sort of maybe the Sutter Hill model. I think you're going to see a lot more incubation, a lot more VCs are realizing that they maybe can't get into these deals or they just don't even hear about them fast enough. These rounds are open and closed so quickly that I think a lot of people on the demand side, uh, on the on the sort of capital side, are going to move to the supply side and figure out how do we actually build these companies in-house, do what Atomic is doing, do what Sutter Hill is doing, do what um, some of these other folks are folks are doing. What I'm really hoping to see is just more capital in the hands of people who have experience. I think more founders who are able to deploy their own personal capital, maybe leveraged into you know two to five to ten x their own capital. I think those folks are just going to be much better at deploying capital. And I think rolling funds will see a really interesting uptick in terms of these folks who have started these syndicates. You know, Air Angels being one. These sort of syndicates that are made by alumni of a certain company. I'm hopeful that rolling funds will almost operationalize and allow those things to scale and then also potentially be able to take outside capital. Because I think it takes time to sort of see, okay, who's good at this? Because it definitely is a, a skill set. I think I'm head of successful fundraise. We'll see if I'm a good investor. And I, I suspect that there will be some people who are phenomenal investors and it will take five to 10 years to, for, for folks to be like, okay, these are the people who, who were enabled by this new model. Let's go give them hundreds of millions of dollars to go deploy, right? Just like what happened with Josh with First Round and, and Mike Maples with Floodgate. I think it just takes time, or even Kleiner and Sequoia with their small funds in the 70s, right? Like it just takes time. And this is what I'm, I've been learning recently is I'm super early. Like I, I, I think I was early with Gumroad. I think I was early with iOS. But in general, I, I kind of underestimate potentially, like I just assume the world is as tech savvy as I am and as risk leaning forward as I am. And that's often not true. And so I think it'll take time for a lot of the really large pools of capital to say, hey, look, like we want to deploy capital in this in this new way. Uh, but in general, I think the big shift is people are going to figure out how do we get as early as possible, because that's where the returns are. And in a world in which it's so hard to find those currently. And I, I frankly, I think that's a great thing. I think it makes it harder for some folks. But in general, look, if there, if there are forces that are incentivizing growth and in incentivizing innovation, incentivizing software development, incentivizing vaccine development, who knows, right? Like, I just think in general, that's a good thing. You know, the fact that you can't get a, a nice return on investment easily anymore, it requires work and sophistication. I think, I, I don't know, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think 10, 15, 20 years from now, we might look back and be like, oh, that was really great. We got all of this money pouring into startups. Yeah, most of them failed. Uh, just like they did in the dot-com boom, but like Google and Amazon and eBay and like a lot of great things came out of that. That's just the nature of the game and stochastic returns is you have this sort of over-proliferation and then most die, but the, the winners really, really, really win. Let's go through your journey with the rolling fund. And you certainly are an early adopter and probably one of the most notable people that have raised a rolling fund. I think I read somewhere you're at 8 million with a cap of 10 million per year. Did you set out to be a VC? How did this all come about in the first place? It really was accidental. I, one of my LPs, who was uh, he was a VC at Kleiner for, and I was at Co2. He was like, "You're the most accidental <laughs> VC I've ever met," which, I, yeah, I, I like as a subtitle. I think it, it really was organic, uh, and I think that's why people resonate with it, uh, and why I think I'm maybe a good case study for it is I, you know, after the George Floyd stuff 
went down. I tweeted, I want to invest in more black founders, just angel invest. I ended up doing four, four deals, checks to four black founders. Three of them were looking for more capital, put together a little memo, shot it out to a bunch of folks, including uh, Naval from AngelList. And he replied saying, look, if you're doing this much work, like I would rather just give you money and then you can deploy it however you want. And I can sort of advise you instead of advise each of these, you know, make a decision per company. And I was like, okay, <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't even know that was an option, frankly. So I had a call with him and he kind of explained rolling funds and how it, it makes it easier to, to potentially get started. And you don't have to say, you know, I'm raising a $5 million fund or a $10 million fund, you know, spend six, nine, 12 months meeting a bunch of folks, soft circling commits, et cetera. Um, you can start at 100K a quarter, just ping your friends. You know, I'll put in a little bit of that to get you started. You know, we'll see where this where this goes. And at that point, it was really about the rolling nature of the fund, right? Which is which is where the name comes from, the idea that you can raise capital on an ongoing basis. So instead of saying, hey, I need 500K from you, I can say, hey, I just need 25K from you this quarter, 100K a year. You know, you can sign up for one year, two years, five years. After that point, you can cancel like a Netflix subscription. And this, this is, I think, just great. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's not that different or it's not, you could have done a traditional fund. I think those things are true, but I think the cognitive barrier is very high, right? Where I'm like, I don't know if I can be a VC, like 5 million, that's a lot of money. But if I just, now I'm at eight, <laughs> but I, if, I wouldn't have been at eight if someone said you need to be at eight to do this, right? I think it became interesting to me because I could get started. The, the stakes were low. And even when I tweeted about it publicly, which is, I think the innovation that I brought to it was I combined rolling funds with the 506C stuff. It's just I was I really wanted to learn. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I was learning a lot. I was having all of these amazing conversations. And I felt like I knew what startups were. I felt like I understood the industry. And then when I became sort of a VC, I was like, oh, wow, there's a whole other I mean, this is like 80% of the industry, I feel like I didn't know about it was kind of like the tip of the iceberg uh, analogy. I just thought I'd do a Zoom call. Uh, this is COVID. Everyone's sitting at home. There are no events. Like I can just do a Zoom call, tweeted it out, got 1,800 people signed up, 800 people live, which is more than most events I've spoken at. That was the, the first hint to me that like, okay, there is a lot more interest in this. Most people just want knowledge, but, but some of these people want to deploy their capital in, in, a, in a new and different way. And again, you know, people are looking for yield. People are seeing the volatility in the public markets. People are trying to get early and earlier. And so I think that creates much more interest in, hey, I want to get into early stage venture. Hey, this person just tweeted about a fund that is investing in early stage venture. I think those two things dovetailed really, really nicely together. You talked about the 506C, which for those that don't know, is the ability to raise a fund through general solicitation. You have a very active and loyal Twitter following. Is the 506C, at current form, it really dovetails into people that have big brands and can use mediums like LinkedIn or Twitter to really get their story out there? Yeah, I think that's where it starts, right? Like, I think the folks who are were successful on Twitter in the early days were celebrities like Ashton Kutcher and, you know, news outlets like CNN, New York Times. I think people sort of typically will take success in another form and turn it into success in a new form. But then over time, you have sort of like native folks who are just really good at Twitter. And that's how they blew up. They just blew up on Twitter. And I think you'll see a similar thing where there are folks that will get into it that will be like, you know, I could have raised a traditional fund. I'm just doing a rolling fund instead. Over time, we'll see people who could not have done a traditional fund, but are able to do a rolling fund. My guess is 506C will become the default rule to fall under just because it creates an opportunity to talk about it, right? Like you can be in a room and you have to kind of be aware, like, oh, maybe there's a journalist in the room. I probably shouldn't mention the fact that I have a fund, even though, you know, I'm not fundraising from anybody. There's just so much 
when I talk to VCs, they're just like, oh man, it's just so frustrating that you always have to be aware of this stuff. The thing that you lose, there's, there's two downsides, I guess, to, to 506C. One is you can't take the 35 non-accredited that you can with, if you fall under the 506B, which is nice if you want to bring in some folks who, who aren't maybe wealthy or accredited on paper. And then the other thing is that there's just an operational burden, right, where you have to verify that everybody is accredited, uh, which you don't really have to do with 506B. I assume Carta and other folks will, will basically make that, go, that cost go to zero, right, where it'll be software that does that. And so my guess is basically the cost of doing a 506C is, is virtually zero. And the, the upside is, is, is potentially dramatic. I could go on CNBC tomorrow and say, I have a rolling fund, go to shl.vc forward slash LP, and you can be an LP in my fund. I think the appeal of, of being able to do that potentially, if you're a celebrity, if you're an actor, if you're a TikTok influencer, I was trying to know all the other day, he said, you know, no one's, you know, this, it's early days, like no one's done a billboard for this, right? Like we haven't really seen what public marketability really means long-term, especially with COVID. And so I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see when we come out of this, like how people think about fundraising publicly. It's funny that you say that with celebrities and media types and even sports types. I actually wrote a blog about this on rolling funds. And that was one of my predictions that we will see it. I mean, technology at this point is completely ubiquitous. And there have been a lot of celebrity types that have actually raised funds or partnered with people or investing in startups that could add really interesting capital to cap tables of founders. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this progresses from early adoption to starting to scale and really mature over time. You know, in your mind, what is the scale to? I think you have one of the largest rolling funds at $8 million a year. Is this something that over the long term can be of people raising tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of dollars on the platform? Or do you see a lot of people that are successful rolling into, and no pun intended, into more traditional funds? I also think, you know, VCs just, there's not that much to talk about as a VC, right? If you're investing, you know, you're really helping the, the companies in a, in a private way. And you can sort of, this is why VCs end up bragging, or they, you know, they just talk about fundraisers that they participate in. And there's just not, you're not doing that much that's interesting to talk about, which I think is good. I think you should sort of the founders maybe deserve more of the, of the limelight. Um, I think one of the really fascinating things about talking about fundraising publicly is it gives me something to talk about, which actually increases my deal flow a ton because founders just know that I'm an investor. The problem with doing angel investing is people just don't know that I do that. And so I just missed most of the deals. But now that I have a fund, it, it, it gives me a little bit more, more top of mind, I guess, for, for a lot of folks. Um, in terms of rolling fund scaling, I think TBD, I mean, definitely today, I would say my, my guess is, you know, if I have an opportunity to raise 20, 30, $50 million a year, like kind of what Josh Buckley and Lockheed Groom are doing, I'll probably do that traditionally. I'll create a traditional vehicle. I'll still maintain my rolling fund. My rolling fund might focus on pre-seed, seed, you know, valuations may be bracketed under a certain amount. And then I'll have a traditional vehicle that can do follow-ons and things like that. This is kind of what uh, some folks have kind of done already, uh, Lee Linden with Quiet and, and other folks I think are starting to, to experiment more with that sort of like bifurcated model. But I do think, you know, it's still early, right? I, I like to think about rolling funds as like the remote work to traditional work, rolling funds to traditional funds. Like, yeah, traditional funds still serve that purpose, especially if you're raising from big institutionals who want like a 10, 20, 30 year commitment. I do intend to be a VC for the rest of my life. Will I continue to use rolling funds? I think that really depends on like where rolling funds go. Right? Where, what is AngelList working on? What functionality and features will they launch in the next year, two, three, four, five years? There are a couple things that I think there's some amazing things about rolling funds. 
And so I think if they can figure that out, if they can figure out how do we get long-term institutional capital on board, how can we help GPs scale, um, how can we make LPs feel really comfortable that they're getting some of the things that they get with traditional funds, like that long-term relationship, that maybe the, the transparency, some of the reporting requirements, audit requirements, et cetera. My guess is, you know, Angelus is massively incentivized to figure that out. <laughs> so I think uh, we'll see, but I think, I, I don't think even they know. Right. And I, I also think the upside is massive. Traditional funds, we kind of know where things will go with traditional funds because they've been around for a long time. I think a rolling fund is kind of like a seed stage startup, right? It could go to zero. It could be kind of interesting or it could be absolutely game changing. And every fund, every hedge fund is effectively a rolling fund, right? Like I, I think it'll be interesting to see. And I, I think no one will really know. And we're almost all wrong, right? Like we're, it's either way larger than we think or way smaller than we think. It's unlikely to be where, where it stays today. The question I often get from VCs and founders is around portfolio construction. Uh, how do rolling fund managers think about portfolio construction with a traditional fund, especially a seed one? You know, about half of the fund is reserved for follow-on investing. And from a founder standpoint, you sort of want to know that the investors that back you early have some capital behind it to follow on. How do you think about portfolio construction? I'm mostly doing first checks uh, and I'm trying to build relationships with my LPs to tell them, look, if you want to do follow-ons, just let me know. And as these companies raise follow-on capital, either the fund might consider doing it selectively or I'll do an SPV to do it, or I'll have maybe even a, tradi uh, a traditional fund vehicle uh, do it as well. I personally think that the, the sort of follow-on pro rata stuff gets a lot of focus, but ultimately I think the, when I when I try to model it out and look at where the returns come from, for a small fund, uh, pre-seed seed, I think it makes much more sense to focus on the first check, trying to do that really, really, really well. Later than that, it starts to make sense to sort of double down more and more. But I, I think generally, the reason to double down is often because you're trying to save time, right? Like if you have 50 companies, you're, you have, you're spending a lot more time than if you have 10, 20 companies. And so larger funds, I think, it makes sense for them to double down and really sort of buy up ownership in the companies that they believe in and, and sort of constrain their portfolio because they have board seats, they have other commitments uh, for these companies. They're much more involved. I think if you're not a lead investor, it makes less sense uh, to kind of dedicate resources to those to those things. Um, but it definitely is a conversation that I have with LPs. And I just always ask folks, look, this is my current strategy. I'll take them selectively. When I, I, I will treat them almost like new checks. Like, would I write this as the first check into this company? knowing that I have all of this extra information, pro ratas and, and reserves just dominate the fund over time. They just become absolutely massive. If you're a pre-seed fund writing 100K checks, it doesn't take too long to get to a point where your pro ratas are now 60% of your fund. It could be one company uh, even potentially, right? And so I think I just always chat with folks. And I'm just like, look, this is why I'm, I'm sort of a little skeptical on, on focusing too much on this. If you want that, we can always do an SPV. We can always structure it in a way. The beauty of of a fund is it's a legal construct. We can always do side letters. We can always have an, a custom LPA. We can always figure this out, right? And, and ultimately, this is a relationship game. So I want to work with you on figuring out if this is really important to you. How do we factor that in? But yeah, I think I think ultimately, I want to get into the best companies. And I try to look at every deal as a sort of a one-off deal. Would I do it if I weren't already in? Um, I think is a really, really important, important metric for me. Like yourself, a lot of people raising rolling funds actually have other full-time positions that they're doing. How do you 
balance the two? And when you are investing in companies, how are you able to add any type of value? And what role do you play with those companies? First off, I always tell founders, like, look, if you want a lot of my time, don't don't take my money. No one has not taken my money yet because of that. Uh, but I always tell folks, like, you know, that I'm, I'm sort of an under-promise, over-deliver type person. Like, I'm super responsive on email, on text. I would like to think uh, I will continue to be as my portfolio grows. And I've found that some of the most successful people I know are, are, are still able to do that. Uh, so I, I think I will be. And I, I just try to scale myself. I think that's the other thing is I just write a lot of content on Twitter. I write a lot of Notion docs that I send founders. I just try to be really, really public and open so that hopefully a lot of the value you're getting, you're getting for free. Like you don't even need to take my money potentially to get it. And then when I can add value to you, it's really those key decisions around, you know, I'm thinking of, I have a term sheet that's like, you know, three on 30 from this tier two, what do I do? Right. I don't need the money. It's, but it's a good price. And I think it would get us to a series A without, you know, like those really specific things I think I can really help with. And I think the, I don't have to think about it like, oh, this is a 40 hour a week job. It's sort of like a, an athlete. It's sort of like sprint, recover, sprint, recover. When I need to help, I can, I can help. But otherwise there might be nine months where you're just coasting. You're just having an awesome time. There's no issues. You're, what you need is me to just not annoy you. <laughs> the, other, the other thing I would add is I always, t- I actually wrote a doc because I was trying to a multifamily office and they're like, why would a founder take money from a founder instead of a VC? And I was like, that's so funny because no founder would ever ask me that question. Uh, you know, again, I'm learning, I'm learning sort of trying to open my eyes. And, and, and so I wrote a little, a little doc that I, I sent them, but it was like, look, the number one thing is I've been a founder. Like I have firsthand experience and I know, I know how to help because I've been in need of that help before. And I think that empathy is just super, super, super useful. And I, you know, I can, I can talk pretty deeply about really boring nitty gritty stuff. Like, should we use Python or Ruby? I'm like, I can talk about that. You know, uh, what framework should we use? And that often when you're early uh, in a company, like those things matter a lot more than some of the other, the other like sort of big picture stuff, right? Ultimately, a building a company comes down to like a thousand really small decisions, none of which seem to matter at the time. What I think I've heard you say throughout this conversation is that there is a unique place for both rolling funds and traditional funds. Each has its unique use case. And at the end of the day, it's great for founders. But as somebody that's both a founder and investor, what are some of the innovations that you'd like to see happen within the capital funding market? Leads are great and VCs are great. And I don't think we'll completely replace them, right? I think ultimately a round, a good round will always consist of multiple types of capital because you're going to want that diversity of experience, you know, when you, when you have certain different types of problems to solve. Yeah, definitely as a founder, I think we're going to see more. If rolling funds is, is the beginning of a shift that maybe started with syndicates or, or Y Combinator even before that, I think we'll continue to see more. I think a lot of founders I talk to are interested in secondaries, are interested in earlier liquidity. I think SPACs are sort of part of that. I think we'll see kind of a reversal in terms of how long it takes for a company to get to liquidity, just because, again, there is so much interest to get into these companies. And frankly, I don't think it's the end of a world for a founder who's raised a Series B, Series C to take a million bucks off the table and, you know, buy a house and especially if they have kids and, and things like that. I think it actually makes them more aligned with the VCs to kind of really seek that big outcome potentially. So I think a lot of this sort of the social stigma around certain topics, I think will go away over time as, as certain people try them and then be public about trying them, right? Just like I was public about maybe failing to build the Gumroad into a billion dollar company or public about the rolling fund. I think doing it is one thing, but, but someone who's credible 
willing to put their neck on the line and say, I did this and I feel, I'm proud of doing that. I didn't do secondaries and I don't want to tell anyone, but I, I did secondaries and this is why I think will be really, really meaningful. I think startups will also, you know, the trend that I see is, is buyers and sellers getting connected directly. Currently, a startup might raise from the average American via four to five different layers, right? It might be a fund that they raise from that has money from a fund of funds that might have money from a pension fund that might have money from its employees. Uh, there's so many layers. And I think over time, with reg- regulation crowdfunding, with 506C, in general, we'll, we'll see with Republic, I think we'll just see more ways for the average American, you know, of which maybe 0.001% of people would even invest in early stage today we'll start to find ways to get closer to that, whether it be through investing in a rolling fund or whether it be through investing in startup directly through Reg CF or whether it be just being more sophisticated. So they even know that if they're starting a business, they can raise a small equity round from their friends and family and beyond. I I think going back to what I was mentioning before, like sometimes I take for granted all the things that we know, but if you go a little bit outside the bubble, people might not know what VC stands for, right? And so I think it's really important to educate people on what all of this stuff means, uh, what is pro rata, what is equity? The way I put it is, look, I think it's such a blessing to have been in tech, to be have lived in San Francisco. It's it's like, I really believe it's one of the best places in the world uh, in terms of innovation and, and wealth generation. And I want more people to benefit from that. And, and I can't expect everyone to move. <laughs> the sort of the geographic privilege, I think, will, will, will go away over time and should. I've lived in Silicon Valley 30, now seven years, and we do live in a bubble. And when I do visit other places and ecosystems and talk to family offices, they don't know a lot about venture. They don't understand the asset category. And so we do take for granted the knowledge base that we have here. It's going to be interesting to see how it evolves over time as technology becomes so much more ubiquitous. And I would argue it already has but investing in startups becomes more ubiquitous. So I'm excited to see that. Last question in the main segment, and and that's really around, I have this conversation with a lot of folks of people thinking about starting rolling funds. What advice would you give these people when evaluating, should you go with a rolling fund? Should you go with a traditional fund? How should people think about that? If you don't have traditional LPs, lined up who might have some worries and concerns about the rolling fund that's the rolling fund is the best way to start you can always sort of add constraints to the rolling fund to make it resemble a traditional fund i have a link that i send people that has a 40 quarter minimum commitment <laughs> just to prove the point if you really want to build that relationship with me i'm happy to to consider doing it I, like i just want more people to try out the new weird stuff right because the more people that try out the new weird stuff like the more chance it has of of really changing the game for everybody but ultimately it doesn't matter i think what what what's most important is you feel like you have a good mental model for for the kinds of companies you want to invest in you feel like you have good deal flow you feel like you'll raise enough capital where it's meaningful for you you know you should do the math and figure out what is meaningful for you you know it's a lot of work i remember the, the first conversation i had with naval he was like you you think this is a great deal but you're like when you realize like how much work you're doing to put in 100k of which you have 20% carry it's a lot of work <laughs> compared to uh, basically anyone down. Because I, I, but my question to him was like, should I take a management fee? Like I'm full time at Gumroad. I have other things. Like, you know, will LPs balk at this? And he was like, look, like you, you yeah, like do the math. You know what two percent is of a million dollars? It's twenty thousand dollars a year. I mean, if you're, if, you know, like which is co- sort of where we were. We're talking about the scale of the fund back then, and that's a lot of work. You might 
think that number seems high, but it, it might not be for for the amount of work that you're you're putting in and the value that you're really you're you're really adding to these folks. And so yeah, I always I always tell folks, look, if you know, I think two twenty is great to start just because it's it will raise the the least amount of eyebrows because it's just the most common number. Um, and then just make sure you have good inputs, good LPs, and good institutional capital, and good personal relationships, and you know, friends and family that are going to back you. Uh, just like a startup, if you're starting a company, you know, a friend of mine called it like the the people who would give you whatever capital, regardless of what you do round, right? Like always make sure you have those people because if you don't have those people, you're not going to get anybody else, right? They're always going to those people who know you less are always going to look to those other folks um, who know you better. Uh, it's kind of signaling risk in a sense, right? And then yeah, just make sure that you're gonna you're gonna deploy it, and, and finally make sure that you're willing to put in the time. I think I I sometimes like my my tweets and and stuff might come off like I'm just doing this flippantly, but that's just because Twitter is a very small part of what I do, and I put in a lot of work and I spend a lot of time really thinking about the right way to do this kind of stuff. Um, and so it's nice to be sort of an ambassador for Rolling Funds and make it seem easy, and but it's it's a lot of work. <laughs> It's a lot of emails, it's a lot of calls, it's a lot of, you know, helping founders with really boring stuff. And so I think, you know, just be willing, it's a job. I think, I think that's the, the sort of like the best way to put it is like, think of it like a job. Don't think of it like a hobby. It's real money. Uh, and I take it very seriously. You wouldn't raise money for a startup flippantly, right? I think that's always the mental model I use is like, this is really just starting a new startup. I should consider it. It's such. That's such an important piece of advice and appreciate you being so transparent and walking us through your journey, both publicly and on the recording here. I'm going to end with a rapid fire three question segment that we call heat check. And we'll start off with what is the single biggest mistake you made in your career and the single learning that you got from it? The biggest one was leaving Pinterest so early. I think the thing I learned was I hit gold right away. And I just, because of that, I just assumed it was everywhere. <laughs> I assumed I would find much more of it later on. And I, I think I, I, I was a little bit too overconfident as, as, a, as, a, as a kid, frankly. And I, I think the other thing is I, I wish I paid my dues a little bit more. I wish I worked more and gave added more value to, to Pinterest. I think I did a lot, but I think I, I could have done much more to turned out to be fine for the company. But I, I just wish I could look back and be like, I added, my contributions were much larger than they, than they ended up being. What's your biggest weakness? I just move really fast. I mean, that's kind of, you know, dovetails with that, that other answer, but I just, I just have a tendency to get caught up with the next cool thing. And I, I really have always told myself and I like have notes just written to myself to just be more patient, take more time. I have a rule now that I decide I never invest on the spot because I just think it, it I just get too excited too quickly. There's too much cool stuff happening. And uh, I think every investor learns that there's, you know, you're always limited by capital, not by the amount of cool stuff you see. There's so many interesting founders doing interesting things. So I'm being a VC has really forced me to understand that lesson, I think more than more than anything else. You've had the opportunity to meet so many great people in the industry. Who's the single person that you look up to the most and why? I think Chris Saka is a really good example. He was an early investor. We've had our, our fights. Um, but I just think the way that he has been able to scale from lowercase fund one which was one of the two models that I had for my own fund up to what he's what he's doing now. He seems to like turn his weakness into a strength. I hope to be able to do that as well. And I think he sent me some some emails that are difficult to read, but I I think there's so few people who are are willing to do that. And so I always I always appreciate you maybe not in the moment, but you know, I, I, I think the growth that I get from stuff like that, I just value tremendously. Very few people are really willing to be candid to your face. 
This has been great. This has been a really fun conversation. Sahil, thanks so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It was super fun. Thanks so much again for listening to our episode of Sahil. To learn more about Sahil and Rolling Funds, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts where you'll find detailed notes from the show. While you're there, make sure to hit the subscribe button to get each and every episode as soon as it releases. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Until next time.